This is All People Are Crazy, a reverent discussions on how to cope with being a perfectly normal crazy person. These conversations are to nudge your curiosity about mental health, fill in any gaps in your knowledge, and encourage you to make the difficult deal of taking your own advice. This podcast series includes adult concepts, explicit language, discussions of mental health, mental illness, suicide, trauma, violence, drugs, and sex, but generally not all at the same time. Please be gentle with yourself and remember to seek support if you need it, starting with family and friends, your general practitioner, and in Australia Lifeline from 13, 11, 14. Hello, welcome to All People Are Crazy. I'm Lisa Downs and I'm joined by my amazing friend of 23 years, psychologist Tom Lothian. Hello, Tom. Hello, Lisa. How are you? I am great. I am loving that we're both in our little Harry Potter cupboards. Uh, So just to set the scene for our listeners, you and I first met in our first year of university in Melbourne and you still live in Melbourne, but I'm now actually in regional New South Wales, about 40 minutes of Canberra. Uh, So we are doing this long distance today after a few false starts in person. That's true. Yeah, it turns out my ability to record quality audio is minimal, but that's okay. <laughs> Hopefully, with any luck, the value of the internet and uh, this room full of sleeping bags will mean that uh, we sound a little less echoey and a little more coherent today. Amazing. We are definitely going to get there in the end. So, as to what this podcast is all about, uh, in preparing for today, I went to review our original planning notes uh, and I could see thousands of diary invitations for the last 18 months while we've been trying to get this off the ground. But I did struggle to find our notes because you sent them to me in a document titled Plan for World Domination. Is that what we're here to do today or are we doing something about psychology, which is your actual expertise? I mean, you say that like they're mutually exclusive, but the the, kind of underlying reason for this the reason why i called you whatever in the height of covid madness and said hey we should do a podcast uh is that basically i'm a clinical psychologist i've always been really busy as far as kind of work is concerned like i've never struggled for referrals in fact i've always run a wait list and i find myself in my work having a lot of the same conversations again and again And I figured if I could find a space where I could record some of those conversations, then maybe I could get in front of some parts of my work, that this might be a thing that would be of use to people, the community, and hopefully ultimately into uh, just making a little bit less demand for psychological services out there. Because it's been a busy time, Lisa, in the trade. Yeah. So I was, as much as I'm in New South Wales now, I was in Melbourne during our lockdowns of the last two years and you were flat run off your feet. Uh, What sort of specialisation and skills do you have? What sort of people do you normally work with? I mean, I basically see all comers, so I'll take essentially any mental health presentation, but I suppose that kind of cornerstone of my practice is complex trauma Uh, and it's not that I'm specifically looking to be a trauma like specialist or or kind of work uniquely in trauma it's just that these are the folks that a lot of other clinicians either can't or won't see Uh, whereas I'm more than happy to talk to them I think the work is uh, is fascinating and rewarding challenging at times absolutely Uh, yeah but basically trauma is the kind of like foundation of a lot of what I do Uh, but basically any mental health presentation yeah, great. 
Uh, and you've worked uh, with children and in jails and a stack of places over the years now, even though you were originally an accountant by trade, just for anyone who, you know, uh, needs some tax advice as well. Yeah, that's uh, so I'm not a registered tax agent and uh, any advice provided should be considered general in nature. Uh, but look, I mean, like half of psychologists are mature age students, right? Uh, yeah, I just took this fairly unusual pathway from accounting into psychology, whereas everybody else comes from like education or at least a profession where you talk to people for a living. Uh, yeah, and like there's been some advantages in, uh, in being an accountant in psychology, uh, most of which has no impact on my clinical work day to day. Yeah, my clients have no sense or gain any benefit whatsoever none none no benefits none benefits Ugh, no benefits whatsoever okay my, my history of double entry accounting i took us down a rabbit hole we didn't need to go but before we really <laughs> kick into what we're here for today for a bit of an overview about why all people are crazy uh do you want to do a disclaimer of any nature before we kick off Oh, look, no, I think my insurer would be appreciative if that was the case. So please keep in mind, folks, that this is generic, general information. Uh, if you feel like you would benefit from a longer conversation with a me-shaped person at some stage, always start with your general practitioner. So go book a session with your GP, have a chat about what's going on for you. And hopefully if you can take some value from what we're talking about today, but you'll always need to bespoke it down to yourself. And doing that with a professional is always a good idea. Fabulous. So I reckon that's got us covered for formalities. So let's get started. Today we're covering why all people are crazy and we're also going to get started um, with a bit of a chat on phobias. So hit me, Tom. Why are all people crazy? <laughs> this is kind of one of my like big theses, my big theories as far as my work is concerned, is that essentially I see humans as cavemen stuck in the 21st century. And as a result, we turn up to life with an emotional toolkit that is really well suited to the savannah of Africa about 200,000 years ago. And that's a really poor fit for the 21st century, particularly for the developed world in the 21st century. Uh, and as a result, I think we see a lot of gaps between the things we feel and the lives we actually lead. And anxiety, phobias is a really great example of that. It's not the only example, but it's a really great example of that because we have a tendency to fear the things that were dangerous to cavemen and we don't fear the things that are dangerous to humans in the 21st century. So that's why I would say that if you're finding yourself to be feeling unusually odd or a poor fit within society, uh, are you crazy? Yeah, but no more than everybody else. We are not well suited to the lives we have created as a society. Yeah, so uh, I, you're saying I should be more afraid of TikTok and the internet and Instagram <laughs> and less afraid of... Or are you equally afraid of caveman things? <laughs> I mean, I would say, so keep in mind, let's, let's run caveman era threats, right? So that's a kind of a nice highlight example. So uh, things that used to kill cavemen, uh, pandemic disease, that one's still relevant <laughs> as it turns out, uh, but disease vectors are still a big kind of a trigger for fear for a lot of people. So blood is a big trigger for fear. Um, even like wee and poo can be a big trigger for fear as well from a lot of people. Whereas in reality, these do not kill people by and large in the 21st century in developed societies, right? If you've got a solid subterranean sewage system and clean drinking water, uh, these are very minimal risks as far as 21st century humans are concerned. Um, humans are not a flying animal. And so we have a tendency to fear heights. Uh, but interestingly, and as a kind of great example of the gap between uh, our 21st century experience and our caveman history, is that a lot of people will fear flying 
either because it represents being trapped in a small space, which is, again, we're not a tunneling creature. Uh, and so that's, I think, where that fear comes from. Uh, but very few people fear aeroplanes. So you might drive past an airport, look at an aeroplane on the ground, and it's not really going to do anything for you. But if you get on an aeroplane, that combination of feeling trapped also happens in kind of tunnels and under bridges and stuff like that. Uh, and being high up in the air, because you're not a flying animal, that can trigger quite a lot of fear in a pretty fair percentage of the population. Uh, other common fears include dangerous animals. So people fear snakes and spiders, sharks, lions, tigers, bears, am I? Um, which again, these are not a significant cause of death uh, in the 21st century. And I'd say in Australia, uh, you know, there's a lot of fear of sharks and we have like representatively in the world, a lot of people die of shark attack in Australia. It's still less than 10 people a year die of shark attack in Australia. Uh, whereas we don't fear cows intuitively because they're not an apex predator, right? A cow is not going to try and hunt you down, uh, but actually more people die from cow-related deaths in Australia in the 21st century. Well, it's because it's an industrial accident, right? <laughs> There's a lot of cows and they're big. They're big units and it's dangerous yeah, right. work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and again, this is... <laughs> it's the difference between the stats, right? The thing we rationally understand to be of risk to us and the things we actually fear. Uh, any other fears that we've got there? So we've covered um, disease, heights, uh, being underground, a drowning, not an uncommon one. Humans can swim, but not terribly well when you think about how well other animals swim, like fish, uh, or dolphins and seals and stuff like that. Those guys really move through the water beautifully, and they wouldn't be holding the same kind of fears that we have. Uh, but equally, those animals will hold fears uh, that represent the risks to them as a species in the broad evolutionary scale. Uh, and finally, the biggest fear by country mile, more than the rest combined, is fear of other humans. Uh, social anxiety, by far and away, the biggest anxiety that people have representatively okay so i'm so glad you got us uh into people as opposed to cows dolphins and planes <laughs> so because i think a lot of this came out during covid um so we um some of us developed a stack of new fears or new phobias or new anxieties <laughs> that we didn't know we had before uh until the government started sort of shouting at us that we all had to be separate and stay away from people and stay in our houses can you talk us through some of the things that might have actually been really normal for people to feel over the last few years uh and they are in fact not crazy for having felt that way <laughs> Well, it's a really important point. I mean, I tell you, if anything, I would argue that there was a dysfunctionally small quantity of social anxiety in March of 2020, which is really when it really kicked off, COVID really kicked off in Australia, uh, that we saw like a pretty fair quantity of folks who were able to retreat into their houses. And while fear is an unpleasant emotional experience, that doesn't mean it's getting in the way. And if your fear keeps you at home in the context of you know, the pangolin's curse, wearing around inside society, then that's a useful thing for you, right? It's a thing that'll keep you safe. Uh, and look, there's a whole great book called The Gift of Fear by a guy called Gavin De Becker that's worth a look for anyone who's interested in psychology and emotions more generally. And it speaks to that as a concept, that just because it's unpleasant doesn't mean it isn't useful for you. Uh, the challenge then, of course, is that emotions are shaped by experience so when we have the experience of the government shouting that everything the sky is falling and you really should go inside right now that can increase our fears but then having that fear decrease as the risk of COVID starts to retreat that doesn't spontaneously occur right it's a thing where we need to go out be brave have fears and be safe and then by practicing that repetitively, that fear will start to retreat. But it's hard yards to do, right? And again, this will occur in completely normal people. 
I mean, I would argue actually that all the people are completely normal. That's kind of kind of upshot of my whole theory that all people are crazy. If all people are crazy, then all people can make sense and all people can make change. Uh, and that's the kind of good news story attached to that as a phenomenon. So, Tom, if people have had some phobias, you mentioned that uh, practicing your way through these is a way to um, sort of resolve or try and minimize that um, overall fear. How would people go about doing that? I mean, I think the first question to ask is whether this is actually a problem. So in any of our wonderful acronyms that we have in mental health land, whether it's OCD or SAD or GAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder. None of this. Oh, okay, because none of those letters meant anything to me. <laughs> generalised Anxiety Disorder and uh, I can't remember, Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. There we go. Um, the most important letter in all of those acronyms is the D at the end. And the D always stands for disorder. So just because you are obsessive and compulsive, for instance, doesn't mean you have a problem. Like I am highly obsessive and compulsive and that allows me to be ordered in my life, right? It allows me to book meetings and attend things at the right time and wear at least some clothes uh, and be vaguely functioning on any given day. If I was in no way obsessive and in no way compulsive, it would be very hard to maintain a level of orderliness. So all of this is about balance. And if you feel like your fears are in balance with the risks that you face in the world, then that's great. Now, importantly, your brain is going to try to convince you that all of your fears are sensible and it's not a problem at all. And you want to be a bit careful with that. But having a conversation with yourself, incidentally, is a completely normal experience. A lot of people will worry that just because they are essentially fighting with themselves, that that makes them unusually mad. Uh, and that is a completely normal phenomenon. I would actually suggest that a human's ability to argue with themselves is probably one of the fundamental building blocks to being creative and doing good problem solving. It will also make you look like a crazy person on any given day. So try and keep those thoughts on the inside of your head uh, or like map it out. Write yourself a little pros and cons list. And of course, you can always talk about this with the people that you are connected to. This is why it's kind of handy to have friends and family, is if you think your fear of the outside is starting to really get away from you and that after two years locked in your house because of COVID, you perhaps probably could get out, but you don't feel like you're ready to yet, that's a really great time to start figuring out when you have fear, when you have anxiety, what triggers it, how much is triggered. And then we start to gently challenge you. So it's about picking a small challenge to start with. Uh, it's always safe, right? So whenever I'm working with someone who, for instance, has a fear of spiders, uh, we will start with like a line drawing of a spider, which will still give the anxiety a tingle. And then we have uh, like a color drawing of a spider and then a photo of a spider, then a video of a spider. And ultimately you'll be holding a real spider but the spider is always a daddy long legs, which is not dangerous to humans. And we have a heap of dangerous spiders in Australia, but we never desensitize in our fears to those because that would be unhelpful, right? If you're going to decrease your fear to the redback spider, which terrifyingly lives under the toilet seats of a lot of uh, houses in this country, uh, that is only going to decrease your chances of survival, even in the 21st century. So we want to maintain our fears for the dangers that we face. That's our rational assessment of risk. But what we want to work with is any situation where there is more fear than there is danger. And by practicing being afraid while being safe, challenging that fear, so deliberately provoking that fear, and then letting nothing happen, 
that will desensitize us to our fear. It's a process called exposure therapy. Uh, if you feel like you can run that independently, uh, best of luck to you. There's some excellent guides uh, through the Black Dog Institute, uh, who are a wonderful clinical and research practice in Australia. Uh, and they have a self-guided uh, CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Program, called This Way Up, uh, which includes a whole module on anxiety and is a really great place to start if you're wanting to have a crack at this independently. And of course, you can always go and see your general practitioner who might be able to assist you themselves or refer you to a me-shaped person. Awesome. So that's good. What I um, took out of that as well as some of those practical tips was you really need to be aware of what's going on in your own body and in your own head in order to get started in fixing some of this stuff. Yeah. So if you were going to suggest like some questions or some methods is like journaling or putting some questions to yourself about how you're feeling, is that a good way to get started with trying to unpack some of this? Yeah, either journaling or talking to someone are the, the things that really kind of highlight and celebrate in your suggestions there. Uh, because the real challenge of trying to think your way through those situations is that in your inner mental experience, there's no requirement for a cohesive argument or even complete sentences. Like it's very easy to get distracted and not even know that that's happening while you're trying to think your way through a situation. Whereas if you're writing down your situation, it, the writing will force you to articulate the full argument and you'll see the parts where it doesn't make any sense. If you're explaining a situation even to a friend or a family member, it'll become very apparent when your narrative of the fear that you feel it'll be really apparent when that starts to detach from the danger that's apparent within society. Uh, and of course, danger can change, right? Like society today in, where are we? Like kind of August of 2022, as far as COVID's concerned, is nowhere near as dangerous as it was back in March of 2020. These days we've got vaccines, we've got treatment, uh, our hospital system may be groaning, but it seems to be holding together. Uh, and so, like, there's never been a better time to catch coronavirus. Please try to not to, people. Wear your goddamn masks if you wouldn't mind. But what that means is that if your anxiety is lower today than it was two years ago, that's a good thing. And if it's sticky and it's holding high, then that is totally understandable. Because, again, you're a caveman. Cavemen didn't have bloody... Norman Swan out there telling them what the generic, like the levels of risk were on any given day. They didn't have Tony Fauci doing their business. Uh, they were reliant on fear to keep them safe until essentially they had witnessed safety within their community to an adequate degree and then their fears would decrease. So spontaneous exposure therapy was the way that cavemen used to shape their emotions. Uh, and we're still carrying that toolkit, right? All the archaeological evidence suggests that the emotional system of humans in the modern era right today is not meaningfully different from the humans of 200,000 years ago. Right. So if I was going to get started, what are the first three questions I should ask myself or reflect upon hmm. as I get started with grappling with a phobia or a fear? I mean, I think the first question is, do I have a problem? And if you do have a problem, I think the next really great question is, what problem do I have? So it's about starting to get curious about which aspects of your experience you find problematic, because it's not always going to be a problem. And even if you feel like you've got way more anxiety than you benefit from, 
you're not going to be highly anxious all the time. That might be the memories you retain at the end of the day. But that's because anxiety, apart from anything else, holds your attention and it helps you encode memories. Now, the downside of that is that in all the times during your day where you were bored or indifferent, you're not going to retain those memories and you might not even pay attention to it happening in the first instance. And so when you're reflecting on your day, right, if you're lying in bed at the end of the day, all of the memories that you'll hold from that day will be ones in which you are anxious. And that can kind of filter essentially your experience. You get a little supercut of your day, but it's going to be a distorted supercut because it's going to filter out all the parts that weren't actually a problem. And so knowing where the, the problem kind of begins and ends, getting really curious about exactly how big the problem is and exactly to what extent it's getting in the way, those are really good questions to start with for yourself. And then you can start thinking about what you're going to do next. Oh, nice one. That was good. Three quick, three good yeah. questions. <laughs> You're good at this. I feel like I slotted like an extra five in there, but yeah. No, you only had three. That was all right. (laughs) Okay, so people should start reflecting on their feelings and the magnitude of the issue and when it's um, affecting them and just whether it is an issue or whether it's something they need to deal with. Mm -hmm. They've got their GP as a backup. They've got some potential exposure therapy if they want to go that alone through the Black Dog Resources. Um, Are there other general tips that people can take on just to sort of boost their mental health well-being uh, in the interim or while they sort of work through that sort of anxiety um, troubleshooting that they're going through? Absolutely. I mean, I think really importantly, we all live whole lives. So no person is just their anxiety or their depression or their psychosis or their anything else. And so it's important to kind of take care of yourself in all the really simple ways. Uh, I tell you, a lot of folks who are either highly anxious or really depressed don't feel like eating right. Their sleep often falls apart. They don't feel like exercising. And all of these things are really good for all people. Stop, 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 Tom. I've seen Instagram and I know <laughs> that self-care means a bubble bath and a candle. What uh, are you telling me? Uh, look, I mean, those can be important too. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, yeah, it's all right. I was going to say something defamatory, but I'll withhold said thought. Um relaxing is good and let's not kid ourselves right if you are too stressed then lowering your stress levels by relaxing is a really important part of it uh the most powerful antidepressant on the market is cardiovascular exercise so if you want to feel not bad and not bad is a good start right we don't always work too good i mean a lot of my work i don't really care too much about whether the client is good or not like by the time they're feeling not bad they can go and manage good by themselves i get people when they're already in acute distress and my job is to sit and watch them fix themselves all the way to not good and from there on they have a tendency to just kind of like go and be happy by having adventures and so see bubble baths and candles uh, potentially is part of the mix for yourself but only a part of the mix there's no one thing that's going to work uh, for anybody, for everybody, excuse me, and everything works for somebody. So bubble buds and candles might be a centerpiece, Lisa, of your own self-care regime. Uh, but I would also really encourage you to like eat regularly and not just sugar and sleep at a consistent time 
and enough and to get enough exercise because, again, you've got to meet those caveman needs. Uh, you've got to drink enough water on any given day. Uh, you know, if you're not peeing clear at some point during the day, that is going to make life a lot harder because you're essentially chronically hungover and no one does good existential crisis work while they're in a state of perpetual hangover, right? You need to give yourself a solid metabolism from which you can then go and be a bit clever and a bit brave and sit with your fear until it goes away. Okay, that is all very well and good, and I take all those that <laughs> advice on board. But what for? What about for those people who just are really struggling getting started? How can they kick themselves in the butt or whatever they need to do, you know, they're just too tired to get up and go for a walk or uh, get outside or uh, cook a healthy dinner. And even just starting feels like it's a bit rough. Is there some sort of way that you can trigger yourself to get started and get moving? What's the golden ticket, Tom? Ah, oh, the golden ticket, the secret sauce, the magic wand. Yeah, look, I tell you, psychology as a profession has existed for like 150 years, and people have been trying to solve exactly that problem for the entire time, and no one has succeeded. So if you can figure out a way to force feelings of happiness, well-being, or motivation into people, essentially against their will, then I think they'll probably give you all the Nobel Prizes for that year and you'll get to like roll around in a big pile of money because you will have sold all of the books that are purchased in that year as well. Uh, so one of the things, a big theme of the work that I bring to my clients, and I think we'll talk about this more in the next episode uh, when we kind of start looking into what is therapy and how to like get decent value out of your psychologist. Uh, one of the big themes that I bring to my clients is to give up on waiting for other people to save you from your emotional stuckness. Ooh. Yeah, bad news bears. Because <laughs> that's the reality of it, right? If there was a magic wand solution, that's what I'd be trained in. And instead of sitting here telling you about cavemen and sharks and cows, I'd be sitting here like waving my magic fingers or doing whatever the thing it is that you do and forcing feelings of happiness and well-being into the population at large. And look, I mean, I make kind of two controversial statements in therapy. Uh, the first one is that there are no psychics. And look, all credit to the people practicing in the profession of psychic. A lot of them are beautiful humans who are incredible at reading facial expressions and body language and tone of voice, and they're generally sensible, so they can come up with uh, either forecasts for the future or sensible recommendations. Uh, and there are some frauds working in the trade of psychic. There are frauds working in the trade of psychology as well, to be fair. Uh, but it's not a thing. It's not. No one can read minds and no one can force feelings of happiness into another person. If you as a person think that someone else is making you happy, let me suggest that you feel happy with another person, which is a subtly different way of seeing the same experience. It's about acknowledging that your emotions fire in a happiness direction when you're in the presence of that person. Great sign, by the way. Uh, but the difference is that your whatever partner, friend, parent is not a magician who forces happiness into you against your will you react in a predictable way. And that's great. That's good news. Uh, the reason why that's a bit controversial and the reason why it's also very good news is it allows you to take some control and responsibility over the life you choose to structure for yourself. So feeling too stuck or tired or hopeless to even start doing the work, 
yeah, that's an entirely normal situation to be in. And again, hear the inherent madness of that. Hear that we have an emotional system that's meant to help protect us, but when that emotional system gets overwhelmed, it makes us worse and places us essentially in danger. Uh, and so if we can pull on the levers, the caveman flavored levers that we know work for us, uh, then we've got a pretty good shot at getting it done, right? We can take the emotional system as it is and start shaping it in the desired direction. So how do you start? You start by starting. So, I mean, my big metaphor for therapy and therapeutic work is it's like training for a marathon and everyone knows how to run a marathon. It's left foot, right foot, repeat. And if you're a couch potato, right, literal or emotional, then you don't start by trying to run 10K. You start by getting up and going for that walk around the block or even just to the front door or even just to the front gate, however far it's going to be. And then you celebrate that win as the limit of what you could produce today. And then you rest and then you do it again. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. And weirdly enough, if you want to increase your motivation, you should do it by taking action action without motivation. And if that sounds terrible, it's because it is. And the <laughs> faster you can get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable, right? It's letting yourself have the pain, letting that be useful, the faster you're on your way to meaningfully shifting the underlying pattern and of getting unstuck, essentially. Oh man, Tom, all this sounds like quite hard work, but I do appreciate <sighs> all those tips. I think that's <sighs> really good practical advice. Um, it is... <sighs> A bit disappointing that this podcast is going to be about tools and ideas and suggestions for how you can do a lot of hard work and unpacking a lot of those different ideas. That's disappointing, uh, but oh, that, see, will be really I, I that will be really useful. I disagree. I don't think it's a bit disappointing. <laughs> I think it's really disappointing, and that's the good news, right? The good news is... Be disappointed, right? Mm. Don't be looking for whatever, like a guru to come and solve your motivation for you, right? Understand that you are the expert in your own life and you're the only person who can make it happen. There are ways to do it that are easier and there are ways to do it that are harder. So even when you reflect on the days where it's easier to get off the couch and do what you're doing, if you're chronically depressed, what are the easier days where you can have a shower? And what is different about those days? There's going to be some variability. And within that variability are the answers to your problems, right? Again, my whole job, right? Even though they sent me to school forever, right? I had like two bachelor's degrees, nine years of university education. I mean, to be honest, it's nine and a half because I failed three subjects in my accounting degree. It's exactly as uninteresting as you would imagine. Uh, nine years <laughs> of actual university education and the punchline to my psychology degree was that the client has the answer and the client will do the work. And even if I'm trying to understand my client and I say, oh, so this is your situation? And they say, no, it's that. That still doesn't matter. So my job is fantastic because I don't need to know anything. I don't have to do the hard work. And even if I guess and get it wrong, I end up in exactly the same situation as if I've got it right in the first instance because the client is always the person in charge of therapy. That's how therapy works, how change works. Right? You can rely on other people for support. You can react to other people Right, if you feel happy or motivated in the presence of specific people. Those are great people to have in your team while you're trying to make change. But hear that that's not because they're forcing motivation into you. That's because you're placing yourself in their presence and then you react predictably. And that's the good news. Ooh, okay. So we can't get other people to fix things for us. What 
are some types of questions or types of ways that are positive ways for people to support us as we try and work through tough times. If it's not, do it for me. <laughs> I mean, I, again, I would suggest that it's basically another version of what the questions we ask ourselves. So if you've got a friend or you've got a family member or you've got a loved one of some description and you see that person struggling, it's to ask them whether they're okay. You know, are you okay is a great starting point in any conversation. And if the answer is no, I think what can I do for you is a really good starting point. And if they say, I need you to magic feelings of happiness and well-being into me, then you can gracefully decline that, but offer to help them do the things they need to do. Offer to help them set an alarm so that they get up at a regular time. Offer to go for a walk with them. Offer to get them a large glass of water or a cup of tea, right? It doesn't all need to be serious and regulated and, you know, medical uh, when we're doing this kind of self-care stuff. And I tell you, a lot of people fall into that trap of exercise as an example. Like, I'm going to go swim laps in the pool. It's like, do you enjoy that? Like, no. Like, well, why would you do that then? Why don't you go jump on a trampoline or run with a dog or, I don't know, ride on a BMX track, right? Try and engage your joy. Try and engage your happiness because that will take the edge off the discomfort that you are going to feel as a part of all of this work. Awesome. And if I'm the one struggling and I'm asking other people to help me, how do I go about that? What sort of things can I ask for? I mean, with your words is a really good starting point. Again, when we expect other people to be psychic, I think it's very easy to sit and you like make a facial expression or maybe you post a specific thing in your various social medias. And then when nobody understands that this is a cry for help, you'll either feel abandoned or frustrated or both. Uh, yeah, use your words, please, openly, without subtext. If you need help, ask for it. Help is available. I mean, often people are more connected than they realize. And if they ask for help, they'll often receive it from their personal networks. And if they can't or won't receive help from their personal networks, there are professional networks. And again, let me hail the role of the general practitioner in the Australian healthcare system uh, as the hub of our healthcare system. So the general practitioner is meant to be a great generalist who, if they can't do the work themselves, will help you find the next person. Uh, and they're often the person who has to provide you with a referral, whether you need an ear, nose and throat guy or an orthopedic surgeon or a psychologist. Your pathway to all of those professionals is through a general practitioner. And of course, just going and asking for help is enormously healing in and of itself because it involves you acknowledging that you have a problem and that, whether you realize it or not, is already going to start you on a pathway to getting it done. Very good advice. Very, very, very good advice. All right. So episode one, uh, Tick, what are we doing in future episodes? Where are we going to from here? <sighs> Look, we're going to talk about every weird and wonderful facet of the human experience that I can find in that plan marked, uh, you know, in that document marked Plans for World Domination. Uh, I feel like we had really coherent ideas about a year and a half ago, and now I can't remember what they are. What I do remember is that we're going to spend that next episode talking about therapy and getting good value out of your psychologist, because I think a lot of people turn up to therapy uh, expecting that me and my tribe with all of our cleverness and all of our books are going to be able to create change within the client and I don't think that happens ever. Don't get me wrong, I think therapy is incredibly effective. I just don't think that a therapist, you know, sitting in the woods by themselves pumping out the good vibes makes any difference to anybody at any stage. So what is therapy and how to get decent value from your overqualified clinician? Sounds like the topic 
for our next session. Excellent, excellent. And any other resources? You mentioned one book uh, and the Black Dog Institute. Any other resources to give a plug? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll give a shout-out for Smiling Mind, which is a lovely mindfulness app, free mindfulness app uh, in Australia. Uh, so mindfulness is a practice of kind of meditation, which helps with that whole tuning into your feelings thing. Like we kind of brushed over that, like it's an easy thing that everybody can do. Some folks understand those words, but have no idea what it means to have feelings and notice them. Uh, so anytime we can practice that, it's a skill like anything else. Uh, and Smiling Mind is a great app that is devoid of magical thinking, uh, which is, I think, a trap that a lot of the mindfulness kids kind of fall into. It's a lot of like uh, well-meaning hippies in that space. And the Smiling Mind guys, not so much. Oh, yeah. And there Lisa is laughing quietly at me uh, and wondering how many uh, defamation subpoenas I'm going to get next week. <laughs> oh, look, you know, I'm not... It looks good on Instagram. I'm not names. Uh, yeah, and if you think that you're a well-meaning hippie, all power to you, right? We're all allowed to be different. <laughs> Okay, so wrapping things up for this week, Tom, uh, what are three things that you want people to take away from the fact that all people are crazy and just more broadly about phobias? Very good. So I'm going to say that being crazy is normal, by which I mean being like a weird, contradictory person who has good advice and doesn't take it. This is the normal human state and does not mark you out as a fundamentally different person from the rest of society. (laughs) <laughs> uh, also, you're a caveman, right? So I think a lot of this stuff exists because we are cavemen in the 21st century, which is why we fear heights, uh, airplanes in the air, but we don't fear airplanes on the ground because one was dangerous to cavemen and the other one was not. And finally, I would say listen to what you need rather than what you want. Uh, and if you do what you need to do, like you eat enough food and you drink enough water and you sleep well enough, then you'll probably be fine. That's like 90% of everything. Such a good tip. Thanks, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to be on the socials. Uh, All people are crazy. Uh, You can find us on iTunes and your podcasting place, I assume, Tom. You're the tech guy. All the places. Uh, Keeping in mind that if you do try and reach out through the socials, it'll be Lisa who's fielding any comments and questions. True. Uh, Not me. So don't go onto whatever social platforms we'll have that I won't pay any attention to. Uh, Looking for specific healthcare advice, again, see your general practitioner uh, rather than asking Lisa, whose advice, while excellent in her field of chosen profession, uh, is variable when it comes to managing health and well-being in humans over the longer term. Yeah, that's not my bag. Although, uh, that's it. I give great advice in my personal opinion, so I don't know what you're talking about. But, uh, look, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we will be back again with more on why all people are crazy. Thank you, Tom, from your Harry Potter cupboard. Uh, we will chat again Lisa. soon. <laughs> all right, bye for now. Bye. All People Are Crazy is a production of The Therapy People. We would appreciate your five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice. Why not visit us at allpeoplearecrazy.com.au or on Instagram or Facebook. If you're a psychologist interested in setting up private practice, why not visit therapypeople.com.au to see whether we can be of assistance.